Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome, as always, to First Move. Thank you once again for joining us this Tuesday, and it's a somber day in Japan as the nation pays its final respects to former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was assassinated on Friday. His funeral was held in Tokyo earlier, the streets lined with people saying their last goodbyes. We've got a live report from Tokyo coming up on the show. Also across Asia, Sri Lanka's president trying and failing to flee the country amid a worsening economic crisis, one that led to a stunning popular revolt and his dramatic fall from power. We'll hear from a former finance minister and current opposition MP about the way forward for the country. The big questions for me, how long before formal elections can be held and shorter term, how to feed the nation and negotiate international aid? We'll be discussing And a weaker picture overall for Asian stocks today, rising COVID cases in China, albeit from low levels, sparking fears of further economic restrictions. Macau casinos now being forced to shut down for a week too. Talk about roll of the dice. That move triggering a steep sell-off in gaming stocks like Las Vegas Sands and Wynn Resorts. And a losing hand on Wall Street too. Futures, as you can see, are pointing to a second day of losses for the Dow and the S&P as we await Wednesday's key inflation data from the United States. The White House warning that June's consumer price index will be highly elevated. And a softer picture too for stocks across Europe, where a worsening energy crisis will surely hamper economic growth and perhaps trigger a deeper recession and shorter term constrain the European Central Bank's ability to tackle inflation. All that reflected in currency markets, the US dollar and the euro briefly hitting one for one parity for the first time in 20 years. We're just above that now, as you can see. The US dollar also gaining ground against many other currencies as the Federal Reserve continues to hike rates. Investors firmly on parity patrol today. But first, let me get you the latest from Japan. Large crowds joined with family and friends of Shinzo Abe in Tokyo earlier to pay their respects to Japan's former prime minister. After a private funeral service, Abe's body was taken by hearse to be cremated as the shock of his assassination continues to reverberate throughout the country and the world. Blake Essig joins us now from Tokyo. A truly somber, sorrowful day there, I think, in memory of a life ended far too soon, Blake. Julia, you're absolutely right. It's a sad day here in Japan where even the weather, uh, gray skies, and at times a lot of rain seems to be reflecting the mood as Japan said goodbye and laid to rest its longest serving prime minister. This afternoon, uh, a funeral service uh, for Shinzo Abe, limited to only family and friends, was held at Zojoji Temple here in Tokyo. Uh, Abe's body then traveled in procession uh, to the prime minister's office, the Kante uh, parliament, uh, and the LDP headquarters before heading to the funeral hall to be cremated. Uh, his body, uh, body visited those specific locations because in Japanese culture sometimes the body will be driven by places where the deceased was heavily associated as a sign of respect. Uh, We saw his hearse pass by Japan's parliament. Uh, Hundreds lined the streets including children, people who looked like they had left work to see the hearse pass by, uh, diet members and uh, uh, diet police uh, all there 
to, build, uh, to bid a farewell as Abe's body passed by some of them uh, in tears. Now, for the past several days, uh, we've talked to people out in the street. Every single person, whether they uh, liked Abe or not, uh, was shocked. They were saddened, uh, horrified that such an act could be carried out against one of the most powerful people in Japan in broad daylight uh, in a country where gun violence essentially doesn't exist. Now, this is very much a country in mourning as, uh, as they lay to rest its longest-serving prime minister. Now, while Japan says goodbye to Abe, uh, the investigation into his assassination continues. Uh, for days, we've reported that the suspect targeted the former prime minister because he held a grudge against a group he believed Abe had ties to that was linked to his mother. We've now learned uh, that group is the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification, more commonly known as the Unification Church, which was founded uh, in South Korea in the 1950s. Now, the church's chairman has issued a statement uh, that said that the suspect's mother is involved with the group. Uh, CNN has not confirmed with the mother, but the statement pointed out that the suspect's mother attended church uh, monthly uh, and that the man that the sus uh, suspect, uh, sus uh, suspected of murdering, excuse me, uh, the former prime minister was never a member of the church. Uh, Japan's public broadcaster, NHK, is also reporting uh, that the suspect made up his mind to target Abe a year ago and decided not to use uh, explosives which were found at his home uh, because Abe was his only intended target. Julia? Blake, thank you so much for that report. And I know you've had an incredibly long day, so um, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Blake Essig there, joining us from Tokyo. Now from Japan to China, where authorities now plan to make limited payments to some bank customers in the Henan province. On Sunday, police used force to disperse peaceful protesters demanding their money back. A handful of banks have frozen deposits since April without giving a clear explanation. Selena Wang joins me now. Interesting that the authorities are now recognizing that this is people that have lost their life savings through no fault of their own and are going to begin reimbursing them. But there are conditions and you can talk us through that. Do we even know where the money's coming from to, to give them this cash back? Yeah, Julia, there are a lot of caveats here, a lot of questions, and this only provides a very limited amount for, of relief for these people who have been struggling to access their life savings for months now. They have spent months in anguish and still limited answers here. Authorities are saying they will start to pay back some of the people who haven't been able to access their deposits. So individuals with deposits worth less than about 7,400 US dollars in a single bank, they will be repaid first. But importantly here, it is is unclear when the others will get back their money and if they will ever get the full amount back. On top of that, authorities said that for banking customers who received high interest rates from other channels or who were involved in, quote, suspected illegal or criminal funds, they will not get repayment. Now, that line is key because we don't know how many people that actually applies to. Police right now are investigating the banks and have blamed fraudulent management practices for the crisis. Many customers may have unknowingly put their money into these illegal legal funds. And so those people will not see their money back. No surprise, we've seen a lot of angry comments on Chinese social media. Some depositors are calling authorities shameless. They're saying that this is just a delay tactic and they doubt they'll ever see their money again. They have criticized how no timeline has been given for how many of these people are going to receive their money. We are talking here about large sums of money for some of these people. I spoke to an entrepreneur who said he's got six million U.S. dollars worth of RMB saved in these accounts that have been frozen. I spoke to a migrant worker who said he has spent his entire life saving what amounts to tens of thousands of US dollars. And he says he's now struggling to survive, struggling to buy food for his children, to buy 
medicine for his sick parents. And the issues here in Henan, the concern is that they could spread to other small banks in other provinces, because as we've been talking about, this is not just an issue for these rural banks in Henan. There are skyrocketing local debt problems across the country that's been compounded by the economic challenges of zero COVID, of these pandemic costs. And we have seen several rare protests in response to this banking crisis in China in the past few months. The one on Sunday was violently suppressed by authorities quashing these peaceful protesters. Some protesters were left injured bloodied and bruised. That only added to the national outrage that has been escalating over these past few months. Analysts see this latest move from authorities as a way to try and maintain some social stability because, again, we are just months away from the all-important party Congress when Xi Jinping is expected to seek an unprecedented third term at the top of the Communist Party. And this social instability could be seen as an embarrassment for a leader that has been priding himself in what he's called his campaign for common prosperity in China, Julia. Yes, and uh, the traditional way of calming a bank run is you allow people to get their money out controls like this, particularly in the face of protests, um, a real challenge. You've got to be very careful how they handle this at this particular moment. Selena Wang, thank you for that. Okay, it's been a historic day in the currency markets, a rare even Stephen moment as the euro and the dollar briefly hit parity for the first time in two decades. A parity party for U.S. tourists, a party pickle for multinationals who could face new earnings pressures. Parity pressures, of course, for the European Central Bank too. Claire Sebastian joins us to discuss today's currency convergence. The euro has been crushed this year, and I I use that term very carefully uh, quite often. I think it's an overused term, down 12%, but it's as much about euro weakness as it is about dollar strength versus many other currencies and the challenges, I think, for the two central banks in in raising rates to tame inflation. Yeah, that's exactly it, Judere. Yeah, a two-sided story, a two-sided coin, perhaps, is the best way to put it. On the one hand, you have the fact that currency markets in Europe are really waking up to the fact that this is potentially a full-blown energy crisis. We have Russia, which has switched off the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which supplies a little over a third of the gas to Europe, certainly if you compare against what Europe imported from Russia uh, last year. That is off for 10 days for maintenance, but ministers from Germany and France were warning over the weekend that they fear it might not come back on again and are preparing for Russia to cut off the gas altogether. So that is one thing. We then have the ECB, which has yet to raise rates at all. It's expected to do so on July 21st, which is incidentally also the day when the Nord Stream 1 is expected to switch on again. So there's a lot to watch on July 21st. But but even if it raises rates by 50 basis points, that will only take it to zero. The Federal Reserve has acted very aggressively to raise interest rates to combat inflation. That makes the dollar much more attractive as a safe haven. So we have the dollar surging. We have these recession fears in Europe because of the energy crisis. And that is what has brought us to this moment. Yes, and your exports get, uh, sorry, your imports get far more expensive when your uh, currency continues to weaken. And I think Germany recorded its first trade deficit, didn't it, since 1991, um, just last week. Um, yes, a huge signal. Claire, great to have you with us. Thank you, Claire Sebastian. Then I was, so Claire was saying about the travel costs of goods as of this too. Uh, Heathrow? More like no-go. One of the world's busiest airports is asking airlines not to sell any more tickets for this summer. It's struggling to cope with high demand and a lack of resources. And Stuart is at Heathrow Forest. Specific restrictions, Anna, that they don't want to be dealing with more than 100,000 passengers per day. What's that relative to, to what would be normal outside of this period? 
Well, that's perhaps what's most extraordinary is pre-pandemic, this airport could take 220,000 passengers a day, which just goes to show how far actually we are from post-pandemic recovery in terms of travel. But there is a huge resurgence in demand. And this cap of 100,000 passengers a day essentially means there'll be a reduction of around 4,000 passengers a day. That's how much capacity the airlines have. Some of those excess seats have already been sold. Some of them haven't. That certainly means there will likely be more flight cancellations to come. And we've already, of course, had many, many, many flight cancellations, particularly from Heathrow Airport. And hopefully this will mean airlines do it with some time. So, you know, travellers aren't turning up to the airport only to find then that their flight has been cancelled. Now, a lot of this comes down to staff shortages. This is something we're seeing at airports right across the continent and I believe in the US as well. Uh, In an open letter from the airport CEO at Heathrow, John Holland Kay, he says, at Heathrow, we have seen 40 years of passenger growth in just four months. He went on to explain or perhaps defend uh, the airport staff shortages by saying they did start recruiting again post-pandemic in November, but it takes time to train up staff. And of course, also, uh, there are also huge shortages still, particularly in areas like ground handling. And for this airport, I'm sure we've got pictures to show you, one of the biggest problems in addition to sort of flight delays and cancellations and airline strikes, I mean, there's a lot at stake here, but also just the issue of baggage. And you can see, honestly, it almost looks like fields of baggage and you pity the passengers who has managed to jet off to their holiday only to find their bag has been left behind. Brave is the traveller who travels in Europe right now uh, with more than just carry-on. This isn't the only airport to be doing measures like this and they did say today, Heathrow Airport, that they're not really enforcing it. This is a request for airlines or rather a plea, I imagine, at this stage and the airlines will work with an independent slot coordinator, ACL, to try and work out where to cancel flights, how to move passengers onto different uh, routes or from different airports to try and manage all of that disruption. But of course, we've seen very similar measures in Schiphol uh, and also in London Gatwick's airport, but this is just the latest. Julia? Yeah, I'm sure the airlines are upset about it because they want to sell as many tickets as they can, but not if people's baggage gets left because they don't have enough ground handlers to to organise them. It's, um, yeah, a huge challenge and and a well done for battling those taking off uh, aeroplanes there as well. Good projection. (laughs) Which I was taking off with (laughs) carry-on. Anna Stewart at Heathrow. Thank you. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In just a few hours, the January 6th committee will hold its seventh public hearing, focusing this time on the role of violent extremists and their ties to allies of Donald Trump. The committee is also expected to look at how the then president encouraged his supporters to go to Washington the day of the violent insurrection. Don't miss CNN special coverage of today's hearing. The program starts at noon in Washington and New York. That's 5 p.m. in London. Russia is continuing its brutal assault on southern Ukraine. Twelve people were hurt and homes destroyed overnight as the city of Mykolaiv came under heavy fire. Ukrainian officials say Russians are targeting residential areas, shopping centres, apartment buildings and hospitals. The United Nations is projecting that India will become the world's most populous country in 2023. A new report says its population is on track to surpass China's with more than 1.4 billion residents. But the UN also warns that a high fertility rate could challenge economic growth. Okay, so to come on the show, undignified exit, how Sri Lanka's president tried and failed to flee a country in crisis. Plus, It'll do 88 miles an hour, but it won't take you to tomorrow. DeLorean has reimagined the luxury sports car for the future. We'll discuss. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. A high-ranking military official has told CNN that the Sri Lankan president was denied departure as he tried to leave the country today, saying he refused to queue up for customs in public. This is Sri Lankan lawmakers announced they will elect a new president later this month. Dramatic protests saw demonstrators storm the presidential palace, forcing the current leader and prime minister to resign. It's all been stoked by a series of crises facing the country. We're talking about historic fuel food and medicine shortages. Peter Smith has the details in this report. In Sri Lanka, the queue for petrol no longer lasts for hours. The wait is now measured in days. This is what it looks like when the country runs out of fuel and money. And this is what happens when the people run out of patience. How long have you been waiting for petrol? Uh, Four or five days. Five days? Yes, in the queue. Protesters have stormed the gates of the presidential palace and from what we saw today, they have now taken over. We will win because people are united. This president is not coming back here. Yeah, never he come. Never if come. he come here, our people will uh, kick out him. The writing is now on the wall for the Sri Lankan regime. The black flag of the protesters now flies here. The new occupants experience the luxury of a presidential bed and there have been queues to take a dip in the president's pool. The fact we, along with these people, can walk through this palace at our leisure tells us power in Sri Lanka no longer lies in the hands of the president, but it's not yet in the hands of the people, because the military still surrounds this place. Heavily armed guards are overseeing this delicate revolution. Police have already fired tear gas on protesters. The guns haven't gone away, but people here tell me they are simply no longer scared. I'm dying for my country. I'm proud for that thing. So the fear has gone away for you? Yes, sure, definitely. Otherwise, why I'm not here? Sheer desperation has driven this. With no gas for stoves, people in Sri Lanka now buy wood to cook in the streets. Community kitchens feed those without fuel or food. Desala Rodrigo has been camped outside this palace since April. Now she's inside the president's old gym. We don't have a gas cylinder to cook. Even if we have uh, induction electric cookers, we don't have electricity. There's a power cut going on every day. So that's the main reason why I'm here. Is this the end? No, this is not. We are waiting until they leave officially. Unless they leave, we are going to stay here and continue. Sri Lanka's president is now in hiding and has briefed that he'll resign on Wednesday. The people say they'll believe it when they see it. Until then, they stay put and hold on to hope. Okay, joining us now is Iran Vikmaramaratna. He's a member of the Sri Lankan parliament. He's also served as the nation's finance minister in the past. So great to have you on the show. Can I just ask, to go back to the comments that I made earlier, in light of the protests that we saw at the weekend, do you believe that the president and the prime minister are safe out in public in Sri Lanka? Uh, I don't think that uh, they, I, uh, it would be advisable for them to be out in the public because uh, people have gone through lots of hardship and there's a lot of anger and animosity. So uh, I don't think that that's a wise idea at all. Uh, people want change. They want them basically out of the way. And uh, now we are getting into the transition phase. 
And, and the transition phase is, is clearly very important. You have no doubts that the, the president will formally step down tomorrow, Wednesday. No, I, I have no doubt about it because uh, he can't survive. You see, uh, uh, I don't think uh, anybody expected what actually happened. It's truly a people's uh, revolt and uh, people from all over the country. And this has been going on for months. He was advised about it, but uh, the advice fell on deaf ears. Uh, uh, I, I did this myself personally to him as well, spoke to him for more than two hours explaining things. But uh, all that was ignored more than a month ago. And so this has, this is an inevitable thing. There's no looking back on it. Uh, so he'll have to go and then uh, we will have to uh, transit to a new president as far as an interim measure. And then eventually the country will have to go into an election and the people will have to decide who should be actually governing them within the legal and democratic framework. What we're heading towards, it seems, is perhaps the, the leader of the opposition party taking an interim presidency period and a unity government being formed. To your point about invention in election, the next government needs a mandate to make some incredibly tough decisions. And we can talk about that on an economic basis beyond um, tough decisions. How quickly do you think elections can be held? What needs to be the priority? Uh, at the moment, the priority is to get uh, people of the long queues, as was mentioned, that people are staying for days to get some petrol or diesel. There has been a shortage of cooking gas. Uh, that's just about being resolved at the moment. Uh, and then uh, food shortages and pharmaceutical shortages, you know. So uh, really, you need a government which has the confidence of the people and a government which has the confidence of the international community and the international markets. And that's first the priority. Now, the moment that is done, then we have to basically call on all our friends uh, to be of assistance because uh, we have in, in default in terms of our debt. We don't have dollars because our reserves have been run down in a very short period by this president and this regime. Uh, and therefore, uh, we have to take some immediate steps. Immediate things will be is to obtain bridging finance, some supplies, credits to get over the, th the gasoline uh, issue so that we could send people off the streets and try to normalize things. If things normalize, then we could certainly uh, go into the reforms that are needed. As you said, very difficult decisions lie ahead. There's discussion with the International Monetary Fund you know, that, that needs to be signed. And then uh, we need to also go in for renegotiating our debt, you see, to make it more sustainable. And then uh, lots of other reforms that have to be done. So we will have to go about it gradually. But the immediate thing is to change the government, put people that the international community and the local population can trust, and then go for some bridging finance and get people off the streets and then get into a more serious economic and financial reform. Yes, and to your point, feeding people has to be the priority and um, trying to stabilise the, the sort of humanitarian and the national crisis that people are going through. Um, when you said reaching out to friends, are you talking India, China, financial support in the interim before you can even negotiate some kind of IMF deal? 
Yes, because the IMF uh, deal, uh, I think the moment the new government is in place, it will be a very high priority that we will sign a staff level agreement with the IMF. And uh, after that, the process <coughs> begins. So it will take time uh, uh, because to get an extended fund facility. But after we have signed the staff level agreement, we are hoping that there will be some emergency funding. Uh, then, uh, in terms of food, you know, we, we some aid and also the World Food Program and others who we have come to our assistance, we need to, you know, pursue that. And then the friendly countries will have to help us, particularly with uh, oil supplies, because if we can get the oil supplies in, uh, life normalizes for the ordinary citizen. And also the economy uh, gets moving again because otherwise the economy is at a standstill because of the energy uh, crisis. So uh, that will have to be done. So I, I think that we'll have to go stage by stage. First things first, uh, getting the Rajapaksas out of the way, establishing a government that is acceptable. Sajid Premadas, the opposition leader, uh, is uh, probably the one that will be most acceptable in the circumstances. Uh, because he leads the largest opposition party, and I think uh, others should rally around that. Uh, the cry in the country would be that nobody who has anything to do with the Rajapaksas are going to lead in the next phase. But in parliament, the situation is different because in parliament, the pro Rajapaksa factions have a majority. So people will have to be realistic, members of parliament will have to be realistic. And they will have to see this as an interim government and support Sajid Premadasa and the government. And then once we get yes. over that first phase, certainly we can go in for an election. And then uh, people who are even in the protesters can come forward uh, and uh, ask for a mandate. And that, you know, that, that door also will become open. Yes. And then the tough decisions really begin. So a lot of work to be done. We, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, joining Thank us there you. from Colombo. We'll speak again soon. Okay, coming up on First Move, the unequal cost of climate change. Some countries could be on the hook for billions of dollars worth of damage to their neighbours, quantified for the first time. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. $3.5 trillion. That's the latest estimate of economic harm caused specifically by the United States and China, the world's top emitters of planet warming gases. A study today published by Dartmouth College is the first to connect the dots between one country's fossil fuel emissions and the negative impact on other nations. The study finds the world's top five emitters, including Russia, India and Brazil, caused around $6 trillion worth of economic losses during the period from 1990 to 2014. Just to give you a sense, that's around 11 percent of global GDP. All right, to discuss the report, Justin Mankin, Assistant Professor of Geography at Dartmouth College. He's a senior researcher on the study. Justin, fantastic to have you with us. For me, this is about culpability of one country to another country. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I think the first time we've actually quantified the cost and attributed it to specific nations and their greenhouse gas emissions. It feels huge. Yeah, you know, this... This is the first study that is trying to connect the long chain of causality between a country's greenhouse gas emissions, how those emissions translate into greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, how those concentrations in the atmosphere translate into global mean temperature change, how that global mean temperature change propagates down to the country level and 
alters the temperature at a, in another country. Um, and then the connection between changes in temperature and income within that country. Uh, you know, that chain of causality is complicated. Um, scientists have spent a tremendous amount of time um, building individual links in that chain of causality. Um, we're the first to integrate all of those links together uh, and treat the associated uncertainties responsibly and show that despite the associated uncertainties at each length in this chain of causality, um, we are able to attribute damages and benefits to major fossil fuel emitters. And, and sort of in English, in a way, you have the complexities of the carbon cycle, you have natural variations in climate, you have uncertainties in when people are emitting and how they're emitting. And there's always been this sort of veil of deniability. Well, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We can see climate change happening, but maybe it's not down to us. This is about perhaps providing, in your words, in the, the author's report's words, well, author of this report's words, um, perhaps some kind of legal basis for nations that are being impacted by climate change to turn around to some of the biggest emitters in the world and say, hey, this is the economic damage we're facing as a result of your emissions. Yeah, precisely. I think, you know, quantifying the nations that are culpable for the impacts of the global warming that has already occurred. We, global warming has occurred. We live on a planet where that's happened. Um, that global warming has had impacts. We can quantify those impacts um, in terms of aggregate measures of things like GDP or within particular sectors of the economy. Um, and having quantification of global warming's impact on a country is one thing, but you're right, it provides this veil of plausible deniability for particular emitters, right? This idea that global warming is this collective action problem that climate mitigation is this public good. And so, you know, if any one country defects, right, doesn't participate in climate mitigation, there's no, there's no impact on, on global temperature. Um, that's not the case, right? One country emitting or foregoing its emissions has an economic impact. We can process trace and identify and quantify that impact and put it in dollar terms. And you're absolutely right. That is central to informing climate litigation questions of climate liability and the uh, ambitions of a lot of low income countries um, in the global south who are rightfully seeking restitution for the damages they've suffered from the benefits of fossil fuel consumption in the industrialized world. I mean, some of the ways I look at this, and when I first saw the um, the announcement of the report, I wondered whether it was a way to justify some form of debt relief to finance even transition to cleaner energies in some of the poorer nations in the world, particularly given that they're indebted in many cases to some of the biggest nations like the United States and China, for example. Um, Christopher Callahan is the first author of the study and a PhD candidate, I believe, at Dartmouth. And, and I saw some of his earlier research looked at climate variability and the impact of um, air quality in Beijing, which was quite fascinating to me. And I just wondered whether you even look at something like that, air quality, pollution levels, or is this simply temperature rises that you're quantifying here in terms of damage and the impact and therefore is the risk that actually this report underestimates the economic loss and the damage yeah precisely i think um you can in some ways think of this as as one quantification of the economic impacts of global warming here we're assessing and and i should emphasize chris chris callahan who i wish could have been here to speak with you 
um, instead, because he he truly led the, this research um, and um, is, is a remarkable scholar. Um, he um, there is this theme within his research about thinking about how we connect the, the geophysics of the climate system to socioeconomic outcomes and, and how it affects people. Um, and, and his work is really at the vanguard of, of that effort. Um, you're absolutely right that uh, we are not considering things like the, um, you know, the, the other consequences associated with carbon emissions or, or um, greenhouse gas emissions in general, air quality um, detriments and, and human health consequences. Uh, those are, uh, you know, those are not an explicit part of the um, the analysis to the extent that those um, you know those health consequences are kind of embedded in this aggregate measure of climate that we use right we are using temperature at the country scale that temperature is subsuming a whole bunch of different quantities about meteorology and climate within that country changes in precipitation changes um, in in extreme heat um, changes in um, in um, in air quality to the extent that changes in temperature are associated with with um, inversions in the atmosphere that that allow um, you know pollution to to get trapped near the surface causing harm to human lungs so to the extent that those things are correlated with country level temperature they would be um, at least part of the measure of damages but in other research that we've done we've found that if you consider temperature extremes versus average temperature, you get independent answers about the economic damages associated with these things, meaning that different, um, different climate quantities have different quantifiable impacts. And here we're simply presenting the warming that has been caused by country level emissions and, and providing um, you know, that, that chain of causality, that evidentiary chain of causality from emitting country to downstream affected country. You got it. I mean, very quickly. No, no, no. It's very important um, because as we always think that we keep saying this, nations do need to work together. And we saw that with COP26 to to find solutions. What this also says is nations need to take individual action, if only to limit their potential legal liability from here. Justin, I have about 30 seconds. Do you believe that actually this will form the basis for, for legal challenges or do you worry that it will just be brushed off? By big nations like the United States and like China? Certainly, you know, uh, large emitters have every incentive to try to prevent um, climate liability claims from, from moving co- forward. I think I there is a, a, a moral... Op- <laughs> yeah. Um, the, yeah, there is a, there is a moral obligation. The, the, the fact of the matter is that this research reveals that the people who have benefited from the consumption um, of fossil fuels and from the warming associated with the emission from the combustion of fossil fuels, they are not the same as the people who have suffered. There has been an, a massive international wealth transfer from the poorest countries in the world to the wealthiest countries of the world. Um, and informing and empowering claims of restitution is absolutely essential to moving um, climate mitigation forward because it's raising the cost of continuing emissions in the way that countries have for the last century. Yeah, and we will continue to talk about it. Justin, thank you for the work. Great to have you on. Thank you to Christopher Callahan again. That's why we mentioned his name. I know he did a heck of a lot of work on this, so we thank him too. He's Um, a remarkable scholar. Yes, we got it. We'll get him on soon, I promise.
the assistant professor at Dartmouth College. So thank you. Okay, after the break, let's party like it's 1981 again. Go back in time and buy a classic DeLorean or look to the future with an all new version. Either way, it seems DeLorean has a car for you, perhaps. The CEO is up next. Now, Marty, it's time to go back to the future. What did I tell you? 88 miles per hour! He was a little bit more excited than me, but thanks to Time Travel Trilogy, this stainless steel supercar cemented its place as an 80s icon. And cemented is the word. Critics back in the day bemoaning its lack of power. Well, the DeLorean Motor Company is back. The revived brand, which is not associated with the original DeLorean family, has been teasing this EV with gullwing doors, promising a range of 300 miles and acceleration to 88 miles an hour. Get it? In just over four seconds. Only 88 initial EV units are planned. Future models include a V8 sports car and a hydrogen-powered SUV. Or if you just prefer the old-school DeLorean, the company can sell you one of those too. Refurbished, of course. No word on whether they come with a flux capacitor. Eust <laughs> DeVries is the CEO and he joins us now. Oh, we had some fun and games with this this morning, I can tell you. Um, let's start by talking about the Alpha 5, which is sort of the premier car that you're bringing out first. Talk to me about spec, how much excitement and why only 88? Well, let, let me first say thank you very much for having us. <laughs> we, we're having a lot of fun with this. Too. This brand is just amazing. Um let me first make it clear. We're not planning on building just 88 cars. That wouldn't work. <laughs> I was about um, to say, the math is not working for me. <laughs> with, uh, no. Um, we're coming out with our Alpha 5 in five weeks from now at Pebble Beach. We're super excited. Uh, we launched the car digitally a few weeks ago, and it's been absolutely viral. Um, you, when, when you have a brand like DeLorean that left the automotive market physically with a coupe, the only way to come back, of course, was with the coupe. And uh, that will be our halo car uh, that you will see and be able to touch uh, in five weeks from now. And not 88. <laughs> <laughs> How many orders do you have? Can you tell me? Do you have orders already? Um, well, th that's really kind of funny because when we started teasing in uh, Super Bowl earlier in the year that uh, we might be coming back with a physical vehicle, the amount of, of, of noise that created in the marketplace was just absolutely insane. Um, what we're hoping for is that uh, given the very limited production run we're going to do on the car, one more than the old DeLorean, um, we'll probably have a ratio of 120 people to one for every car. So it's wow. going to be a lot of fun to see that. Okay, so that will determine or help determine the price. Can you give us even just a sense of, of where you're going to pitch this? Um, given the specs, we want to be very competitive against uh, the 99% of the market we're competing with, which is the internal combustion market. And we want to be mm. priced just under where the cheapest exotic vehicle starts. So think high-end Tesla, high-end Lucid, and just under where Austin Martin starts. Okay. Talk to me about the broader vision, because we're talking about an EV vehicle, but then I mentioned the hydrogen SUV, a V8 combustion engine. And you sort of made the reference there where you said, look, we're pitching at the combustion um, price point in particular. So in terms of the vision of the company, what is it? Sexy, sporty vehicles, not necessarily EV or anything else? 
choice? No, I, I think that the, the message has been a little bit scrambled in the marketplace. I mean, when yeah. we left production physically in 1983 and you're coming back in 2022, there's this little 40-year gap that you need to answer for. And when we started digging into the brand together with the people who've been uh, managing the brand really, really well, we found out there were designs for a coupe, there were designs for a sedan. So what we have basically done is go back into the archives and work with the original designers and recreate vehicles that the world has never seen. So we're launching a 1990 coupe with a V8 engine. We're launching a 2000 four-door electric sedan that the world has never seen. We're launching a 2010 hydrogen-powered SUV. And that makes then the story logical And when we're launching in 2022 our Alpha 5. So the Alpha 2, Alpha 3, and Alpha 4 will be launched over the next five weeks. And then the Alpha 5 will be the first physical evidence of what this company is doing going forward. It's a fantastic story. We're basically writing our legacy in real time. I tell you what, this is an exciting story through and through. I mean, the DeLorean family themselves, he was a seriously exciting character. Um, raising money for this took him into complications that people can read about. I won't go into it. What is the situation with the, the, the family today? You own the rights. It's clean, completely separated. Yeah, the, 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 the family that purchased the rights to the DeLorean brand, the Wynn family, uh, have been an amazing host of that brand for the last 30 years. And they've really built an ecosystem around the DMC-12. Um, the family of DeLorean, the, 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 the heirs of the DeLorean name, they still own everything related to John Z. DeLorean, but they are not directly in, in, uh, in, in the new DeLorean company or in the classic DeLorean company, if you want to call it that way. Yeah, people should read about this because it's quite exciting. This is a cash burn business. And as we discussed at the top, um, making 88 cars only, however exciting and tying to the, to the original story, um, does not pay the bills. How are you going to raise the money required to really grow this? Does it involve an IPO? You're going to have to raise money really fast because it's an exciting time in the market currently to be IPOing. It is. I think if I go back to my EV world 15 years ago, there was no supply chain, there was no contract manufacturing, so everything had to be vertically integrated and the cash burn was just insane to get anything on the road. I think if you fast forward to today, if you want to buy world-class electric motors, you have 12 people or 12 companies that can offer you one. So mm. the barriers to entry from a technology perspective and a supply chain perspective are much lower today than what they were 10, 15 years ago. So contract manufacturing, supply chain uh, solutions is making it more easy, not easy, but more easy to get to market with a new product. Um, as for raising money, um, once you're through your uh, what I call seed round, it's very logical to try to go to uh, an IPO. Um, you need to be able to tap into the into the markets because there's just no way you can do this through venture capital or through yeah. private equity. And you'll see something from us there. I think we've passed the spec market. Uh, we're, we're back into a normal S1 filings, and, and those are perfectly okay. It is all about making sure that your business case can pay for the bills that you uh, plan to spend, because as you said before, it is a very cash burn intensive industry. Great. So we have a date then when you launch officially and um, when you IPO as well. We'll reconvene, sir. Great to chat to you. Thank you. No problem. That's two days. CEO of DeLorean Motor Company there. Great to chat. Thank you. We're back after this. 
Now, never mind the DeLorean time machine. The David Webb Telescope can take us back 13 billion years plus. Just take a look at this. The deepest and sharpest infrared image of the universe ever captured. President Biden releasing this stunning first image from NASA's Webb Telescope. It's a snapshot of light from thousands of galaxies as ancient, as I mentioned, as 13 billion years old. And CNN's Rachel Crane joins me now. Rachel, I was watching you earlier on TV and you were literally bouncing up and down. Tell us what we're seeing. It's magnificent. Julia, I can't help it. I mean, this is mind-blowing stuff here. I want to point out that the James Webb Telescope, it's a $10 billion telescope. It's taken us more than two decades to get here. It's a million miles away from our Earth, so you can't send the repairman to the James Webb Telescope if anything is, is to go wrong. But as you can see, everything has gone right. We are seeing you know, the, the deepest and sharpest infrared image of our universe. And as you pointed out, some of the light specks that you see in this image, you can see they kind of look stretched. That's a result of gravitational lensing. So in the foreground, you have these galaxy clusters that are 4.6 billion light years away, but because of their mass, they warp the light behind them. So you're actually able to see even deeper back into time. So this telescope is really a time machine, Julia. It's bringing us back to, you know, the moments when the universe was just starting to turn its lights on. And this is just the beginning here. NASA is set to release uh, about four more photos in about four, uh, a little over 30 minutes. Sorry, I'm just so excited waiting for these pictures. (laughs) But, you know, we're going to see nebula, which are essentially stellar nurseries, seeing the moments when stars were born. We're going to get to actually see an exoplanet, which is a planet that orbits another star and possibly see its atmosphere. Now, we don't think that that exoplanet uh, specifically would be able to harbor life, but James Webb might be able to identify in the near future exoplanets that could potentially have life. So really, Julia, I mean, this is the stuff of science fiction. Today is really one, a a really historic day in space history. So space enthusiasts around the world like myself, and especially the scientists, are just chomping at the bit to get these images and really for the 20 years of science that James Webb has ahead. Julia? Yes, just a little bit of enthusiasm there, Rachel, but we love it. (laughs) And yes, thank you for the correction on the name as well in my enthusiasm. I got that wrong. Um, Rachel Crane, thank you. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.